From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Falls can cause serious injuries, especially in people over age 65. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says one in four older people fall each year with fewer than half telling their doctor about their fall. I'm talking today with Dr. Andrea Berg. She specializes in geriatric medicine at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Berg, and thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Now, how big of an issue are falls among the patients that your practice sees? Fall is, is really one of the most common events, and it's significant because it's an event that threatens the independence of our older adults. So it's, it's a huge issue for us. What types of injuries do you commonly see in someone who falls? Is it true that 95% of hip fractures happen in falls? That's true. Over 90% of hip fractures are a result of a fall. Almost a third of those who fall may need medical attention relating to that fall. Unfortunately, most of those will have some restriction on their activity for at least some time. The injuries vary. Most falls will result in just minor soft tissue injuries, but five to 10% result in a fracture or more serious soft tissue injury or head injuries. But the hip fractures really are a major concern and an issue if they happen. Is it always lower extremity or do you see upper extremity fractures as well? I certainly see upper extremity as well, depending upon how the fall happened. We can have wrist or shoulder injuries. We can have rib fractures as well, depending upon sort of the situation that ended up with the fall. There's some groups that are higher risk, you know, women in nursing home settings. And if they have other medical conditions like dementia, they tend to be the highest risk and we'll see them more often with the hip fractures. So let's talk about what recovery is like. If someone over age 65 breaks a bone, what, what is recovery like for them? Well, for a fracture, you know, medical management tries to first relieve pain and ideally to restore bone alignment and allow fractures to heal. For if in the setting of a hip fracture, for a medically stable person with a hip fracture, a surgical repair is recommended and ideally early within that first 24 to 72 hour period after the fracture, because earlier repair is linked with a lower chance of complications. But then after that, there's rehab. Um, rehab after so the hip fracture will continue to include pain management, trying to mobilize people, and then again, to prevent complications from happening. So to start out with, they may be immobilized for a while before they can get up and do the physical therapy? Yes, and that opens you up to a whole bunch of other problems, the complications, right? As you quickly can have a loss of strength and you can set yourself up to things like pressure ulcers. If you're in a sort of a, a immobilized state, people could get delirious, they can get blood clots, they could get um, lung issues. So those are the complications um, that we're really, really trying to avoid. So with a fractured hip, because that one seems pretty common, is there casting involved? Yeah, there's a wide variety depending upon where it is. If it's a place where they it often can just be pinned. So there's a lot of different surgical options where they might have to go in and have a pin. Um, but again, it's not necessarily a, a, a cast, a brace. But for our older folks, rehab isn't necessarily so easy and working around pain and some of the limitations. That's where restoring function isn't always perfect. You know, about 75% of hip fracture survivors will return to their prior level of function, but their overall mobility is going to be more limited. You know, half of them 
will need an assist device like a cane or a walker. And a half of patients will have a need for a stay in a long-term care rehab, but only some of those might not ever return to home. You know, 25% of those might still be in long-term care a year later. So that's where the functional changes happen in folks that survive these hip fractures. And, and to note, the hip fractures themselves, there's a mortality rate. People do die from the, the fall itself, 5% during that initial hospitalization in some of our frailer folks. But a year out, 25% can die just because of complications from the fracture. So that's why we take these falls really seriously, because they can have real impacts on people's survival. It sounds like recovery can be very challenging. Yeah, that's why we try to prevent them if possible. You mentioned this can threaten someone's independence. So even if someone, if all they break is a wrist or an ankle, can an older person live alone and have a healthy recovery without assistance for an injury like that? It's hard to make broad blankets, but even those that don't experience physical injury, you know, falls definitely are associated with declines in their functional status and that they have an increased likelihood that they're going to need more supports either in their home or God forbid, having to leave their home and transition into a, like a skilled nursing placement. In general, people are going to have an increased need for medical services. And the bigger concern too, is that they might develop a fear of falling, which unto itself sets them up for a negative impact on their quality of life and a higher risk of falling again. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is your host, Amber Smith, talking with geriatric specialist, Dr. Andrea Berg. Let's talk about some of the typical reasons that someone who is older might fall. What do you typically see? Falls, like many things in geriatrics, are, are rarely one thing. You know, it's often an accumulation of a lot of little things that can add up. But there are some age-related changes that could set people up for a fall. You know, changes in strength, balance, our nervous system. Those are normal age changes that might increase people's risk of falling. But then there's medical causes too that you layer on to those changes and they could really increase people's risk. And that's really varied. You know, changes in vision, changes in cognition, dementia, Parkinson's or stroke or blood pressure, almost anything. You can see how arthritis, these common conditions that happen as we get older can cumulatively increase somebody's risk of falling. So it's really important that on working with your medical providers, you try to optimize your medical therapy, monitoring for disease progression so that we're always avoiding things like a, if we choose our medications appropriately, we could maybe avoid people being at an increased risk of falls. You mentioned medications. I mean, there's some of them that leave a person feeling a bit dizzy. I can imagine that might make someone more prone to falling, right? Absolutely. There's a bunch of high-risk meds. A lot of them have to do with sleeping. You know, a lot of our hypnotics that people take a lot of medications for sleeping, trying to make them feel a little sedated is their goal. But unfortunately, that could clog people's thinking. It could impair their balance. And that group is really high risk for setting up people for falls. Some of the mood medications as well, meds for anxiety or depression, like benzodiazepines in particular, we really try to avoid as people get older because they have been shown to significantly increase people's risk of falling. But even blood pressure medicines, if they're medicines like diuretics that could lower people's blood pressure perhaps too much or set them up for being a little dehydrated, 
that could increase people's risk for falling. So in general, we try real hard to just limit the medications to those that we really need, you know, less is more. And that's something that we frequently will be doing in our offices is looking through and saying, are there safer options? Can we use the lowest effective dose possible and the fewest meds? I'm assuming in central New York, fall hazards increase during the winter months. Do, do you see more patients who've slipped on the ice? Yeah, absolutely. But you know, the summer months have their own challenge as well when it comes to high temperatures and hydration. But definitely slipping on the ice or just uneven and, and slippery surfaces come with their, their risks. Now, I've heard that a person who falls once has a really good chance of falling again, but I don't understand the reasons for that. That's absolutely true. And that's a screen that we do in the office. If somebody's coming in with an initial fall, then we'll look into it. But a history of falls puts them in a different category where we have to think a little bit more holistically on how can we prevent them in a broader approach. I think fear of falling plays into that repeated fall, though. A fear of falling can lead people to kind of play it safe too much. They might restrict what they're doing, and then that's negative for their quality of life. They're not interacting as much, they're less social, but also it could lead to poor balance. They might change the way they're walking, even as the fear limits their natural stride, and that becomes a risk factor for future falls. What do you say to a patient who has survived a bad fall and now is petrified of falling again? You know, there's actually a whole group of therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, that has been shown to be very helpful in this. They aim to change sort of how the person thinks. That's the cognitive part. And then how they act, that's the behavioral part. And looking to kind of overcome that fear of falling by shifting their focus away from more pessimistic thoughts and things that they could do, like exercise to promote their balance and their safety. Well, let's talk about some of the ways that family members can help reduce the chance of their older loved ones falling. What do you recommend? One of the first things we look at is the home environment. And that's sort of hard sometimes for us in an office to get a sense of what's the reality of people day to day. So they're real basic things like making sure the lighting is adequate, uh, particularly at night, removing things around the house on the floor that might be a hazard. If there are things like door jams, accounting for them, looking for loose carpeting or throw rugs. Looking at the furniture, maybe replacing some of the existing furniture with safer, more stable, and more appropriate height options. Um, support structures. Sometimes we even, for folks that are repeated fallers, partner with our physical therapy colleagues and they do home safety assessments. And they'll look at high-risk areas like the bathrooms and make some suggestions on where some grab bars should be installed or elevated toilet seats. So very basic functional things to set people up to succeed non-slip bath mats or a bedside commode to avoid people having to use the restroom a lot in the evening. So those are some things that families can do if, if we're worried to avoid falls or if somebody has fallen to avoid future falls. But then also very basic things like footwear, making sure that the shoes that people are wearing are not only fashionable but functional as well, that they are a good fit, that they're non-slip, that they're not high-heeled, and that they have a really good surface area contact <laughs> ratio. So those are some things that family members, I think, can be helpful with to prevent falls. Um, 
I noticed you said footwear. You're not talking about just wearing socks in the house because socks are slippery, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, Is it a good idea to go barefoot? You know, in your own house, I think that for people, if they're at a higher risk of falls, I think it's better to have supportive footwear that have a little bit more of a tread and that'll give more balance and stability for folks. There's there's a lot of reasons, like we said before, that people have medical conditions that might impair their their um, ability to feel on the bottom of their feet. And so you want to set them up for success that they're not in an unsteady place that they could trip. So if they're a high-risk baller, I would wear supportive footwear instead of certainly not socks and bare feet. Now, does vitamin D play a role in preventing falls? Yeah, that's interesting. So if people are deficient, if they're low in vitamin D, there's certainly a role in falls, but it hasn't been shown for a while. There was thoughts of, we'll give D to everybody, but it hasn't been shown that just giving vitamin D to people that don't have low vitamin D levels improves fall risk. But certainly it's something we check for. And if somebody is low in vitamin D, and by that it's usually agreed upon that like a total D level of less than 30, we should supplement them appropriately with pills, with daily supplements, because that has been shown to improve muscle strength as well as bone health. How do geriatricians like yourself evaluate an individual's risk for falling? If you have a new patient coming in, what sorts of questions would you ask them? Well, we have to ask explicitly if they've fallen, because often people don't necessarily report falls on their own. So asking about if they have a history of falls or if they've fallen recently and and a little bit about the setting around the falls, if they come in with a fall is really important. But other things as well, just asking about any difficulty people are having with walking or with balance, if they're having trouble getting up from a chair, if they're having a false start where they have to do a couple of tries to get up before they're able to stand, they're having dizziness when they stand or problems with their eyes any weakness or sort of numbness, uh, those are all red flags that would make me concerned about safety and falls. And those are definitely screening questions that we ask. If you identify someone who is a fall risk, does that person still need some sort of activity or exercise? And if so, what sorts of things do you recommend if the fall risk for someone is relatively high? I recommend activity for everybody. <laughs> I think that shouldn't be something that we reserve for just those at risk of falling. I'd like to take a more proactive, preventive approach. So exercise programs, there are some that are better than others. For fall reduction, exercise programs that have more than one type of exercise have been shown to be the best. And by that, I mean a combination of exercises that improve gait, balance, strength, and coordination. So things with resistance bands we often use for some of the strength training, like those big elastic rubber bands, um, but also things that focus on functional fitness, like squats that will strengthen areas of our body that we need to stand and to sit appropriately, even our upper arms as well, or our core. Those are things that will prevent people from day to day as they're transferring and going about their days keep them um, fit enough to not set them up for a fall. Well, thank you, Dr. Berg. I really appreciate you making time to talk to us about how falls can affect the older generations. My guest has been Dr. Andrea Berg. She's an assistant professor in geriatric medicine at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.